0: Welcome to Hablamos, Conversations on Teaching, Learning, and Bio-Multilingualism. The podcast of the icme Project at the University of Nebraska-Linco. As mentioned in the name, the main goal of this podcast is to embrace multilingualism. So we are going to have conversation around this topic in the classroom and how teachers can support bilingual multilingual development. I'm Araceli Lobato and I will be your host so, I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Welcome to a new episode of our icme podcast. Today, we have um, a special guest, as always, <laughs> and she uh, works uh, with ICME, so she belongs to the research strand. I'm not so sure now. <laughs> Okay, so she's Dr. Strom. I pronounced it correctly. Okay, so as always, she's gonna introduce herself. So you got the opportunity to know her and I was also, obviously. So she's gonna talk about her her own personal um, jobs and what she's, she is doing in ICME. So welcome to our podcast, Dr. Strom.
1: Hello, Um, so should I go ahead and introduce myself and tell a little bit about myself? Yeah, please. Um, Okay, great. Um, I think there might be a little bit of a delay, Um, but that's okay, I'll just go ahead. Um, So my name is uh, Catherine Strom, um, although I go by Katie, and I am am an assistant professor at California State University East Bay, which uh, is in the East Bay of San Francisco, California. Um, and I've had the honor of working with the ICMEE for the last three years. I started out as um, a member of the Access Strand, and so I was helping with outreach, mm-hmm. um, but my, and and so um, I've, I've always had an interest in multilingual learner education. I started off, um, actually, I, Started off as a teacher in uh, Southern California. I worked near the Mexico-US border in San Diego. So almost all of my students were multilingual learners, mostly from Mexico. And so um, the equity issues around multilingual learner education were very evident to me from the minute that I stepped foot in a classroom. And so this has always been a narrative interest for me, but I'm also interested in the complexity of the phenomena. Uh, learned, of course, the lead of the ICME project uh, had been talking with me about my research and she read my book, which came out in 2017, and it's called Becoming Teacher, a Rhizomatic Look at First-Year Teaching. And so it uses a nonlinear framework, rhizomatics, to look at the ways that teacher learn learning and practice is mediated by multiple human and non-human factors. So the teacher already is a multiplicity. Uh, she brings her background. She brings her understandings, you know, her own body, so many different things into the classroom. And then she comes together with her teacher, uh, her students, who in turn bring all of, you know, their histories, their understandings. Um, and multilingual learners, they bring their culture and their language, which is bound up with their identity. Um, but then you're also going to physical space, you're also in a particular school that has a principal with a particular vision, you have colleagues who have particular ideas, Um, you have access to particular materials, and then all of that is also within a particular policy context and a historical context. So all of that together co-creates what teachers are able to do and co-construct together with their students. And so Kara became interested in my views on how teacher learning from the ICMEE workshops might be materializing into practice. And so she asked me to write a framework and collaborate with her to create a set of shifts that I distilled from doing a review of, of the literature in teacher education um, using complex perspectives. And there's not a ton of literature because um, there's not a ton of literature that takes these complex perspectives. The dominant... Perspective in teacher education in literature and in policy is still very linear. So the idea that Teachers learn they take that learning and then they drop it right into the classroom. And so it's very transactional um, They look at learning as transfer as you take it and it's got a one-to-one Correspondence with what you do in the classroom And so that's where you're, you start to see terms like high fidelity So you're doing this with high fidelity or the notion of teacher proof right? The idea that teachers could take something and reproduce it exactly. Um, so not only is that highly insulting to teachers who are um, highly prepared professionals, but it's also just completely um, unrealistic. It just absolutely um, just does not at all correspond with the reality of the classroom, which is extremely messy. And as I said, you know, it involves multiple, multiple actors, multiple Um, Material elements and socio cultural and historical conditions that are all coming together to produce learning. So, how do you put it
0: like in a way that can be realistic?
1: In terms of how you put this into practice in the classroom? Yeah. (laughs) What we've done is um, we've taken this and we've looked at it in terms of a set of shifts. So, (laughs) moving from we see teaching in this way. To we need to see it in this way. Um, so, for example, one of the big shifts in understanding. Um, actually, I should probably go back and I should talk a little bit first about um, the type of thinking that we're trying to move away from, and yeah, then I can I explain. That's important. <laughs> yeah, and then I can explain in little more practical terms. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, the type of so. The type of thinking and teacher ed, that's very and teacher education that's, that I've been saying is very linear and reductionist. Um, it's the same logic that really structures our thinking just generally in the Western world. It's the type of thinking that undergirds our current political philosophy, political and economic philosophy, which is neoliberalism. Okay. Um, okay. And um, there's a researcher named David Hirsch who writes in education about neoliberalism, and he says. One of the reasons that it's so successful is that government organizations and education is a government organization. It's a government-run institution, right? So government organizations present the requirements and standards of education right now as rational and non-controversial. So that's one of the biggest and most important things to remember here is this type of thinking is presented as neutral as this is just the way things are. This is just the way we think. This is just the way the world structures. But it's actually not. It's a particular approach to thinking. Um, And so uh, there's lots of different terms for it, but I'm gonna use the term rational humanism. Um, And it's a legacy from from the Enlightenment. So it's become the dominant way of thinking in the Western world since about the 1600s. So we're looking at about 400 years of patterns of thinking. And it's become so normalized that it's been accepted as common sense and then its characteristics become invisible and because it's imposed as the correct way of thinking then it's hegemonic right because it structures the way that we make sense of the world um and so the characteristics of rational humanism um are that one the world is uh, a stable and ordered place that can be analyzed and known mm-hmm. um also it also basically promotes that the world is structured in binaries or separation, right, or hierarchies. So mind over body, self over other, human over non-human, man over woman, white over black, rich over poor, right? So on and so on and so on. And so it's structured in these either ors um, and hierarchies. The other piece of it is that um, it gives full agency to the human, right? So humans are fully autonomous, agentic actors, totally self-aware and with the ability to reason. So that's why we call it rational humanism, right? And so this comes from Descartes' statement, Rene Descartes, the philosopher, who said, I think, therefore I am, right? So that created that mind-body split. This is also where you see the linear type of thinking that I was talking about, those one-to-one correspondences. Um, so the idea that what you learn could be complete, you know, have a one-to-one correspondence with what you do in the classroom with nothing mediating it in between, right? So that's that type of simplistic and linear thinking. Um, It's also universal and transcend, uh, right? So that's where the idea is that this type of thinking applies to everyone, that everyone should think in these ways, um, and that it's transcendental. It can be applied across contexts, right? And then the final piece is that difference is seen as negative, right? You want everything to be the same. Um, Sameness is good. Self is good. Anything that's other is bad. Um, And so how does this then apply in terms of some neoliberal educational assumptions? Okay, so the first one, let's take the idea that learning is an autonomous act that can be accurately assessed by standardized tests, which are valid across all contexts, right? So there you're seeing the universal and transcendent um characteristics and you're seeing that reproduction of sameness Um, the idea of standards is another one the idea that sets of standards should guide curriculum universally across all contexts and curriculums right so once again universal transcendent reproduction of sameness Mm -hmm. Um, here's how you can get an application right to what we do with the icme the idea that teachers are autonomous actors who do learning to students as a one-way transaction right so you see that linearity and the false idea of autonomous agency right teachers are not totally in control of what they do in the classroom they have some agency but it's shared across lots and lots and lots of different factors Um, the emphasis in neoliberalism on choice and competition right so on you know focus on test scores um, you know who which school has the highest test scores they get rewarded Um, competition through charter schools um, all of that is based on the idea of um, it's, it's individualist, right? Because it's rewarding one over the other. But it's also about negative difference, right? This one is successful. This one is not. We're going to rank these tests. Um, and then all of this also plays into the myth of meritocracy, that if you work hard and you do well in school, right, you're going to make money, you're going to do well in life, right? And so that's based on a very individualistic and linear Worldview, but it also promotes a neutral worldview, right? It doesn't take into account at all that there are systems of power that interfere, um, that make it so that uh, you can't just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're immersed in a particular context and in particular socio historical and cultural conditions that mediate your ability to do that. Um, So, rational humanism is very harmful for lots of different ways. Um, One, because it totally shuts off the possibility for new types of thinking, right? And um, Rosie Braidotti is a theorist that I use quite a lot um, in my work. She's very influential, and she quotes Albert Einstein, and I'll paraphrase, but um, we can't solve problems with the same thinking that caused the problems in the first place. So that's something that she says quite a lot that she um, uh credits to Albert Einstein, right? And so we need to be able to think differently. And I'll read you just a an excerpt from a poem. This is from Alice Fulton's Cascade Experiment. Because truths we don't suspect have a hard time making themselves felt, as when 13 species of whiptail lizards composed entirely of females stay undiscovered due to bias against such things existing, we have to meet the universe halfway, right? So we can't know what we don't know and if we think we know everything and we're using the same type of thinking it closes off possibilities for different ways of thinking Um, so it only reproduces itself it only reproduces the same way of thinking which means it reinforces the status quo and it also creates this sense of false objectivity and transcendence which um, a researcher named Haraway Donna Haraway calls the voice from everywhere and nowhere or the God trick So by positioning this type of thinking as universal and transcendent, then what you do actually is you obscure the fact that this thought comes from a specific political location, right? The enlightenment was European and it was white elite European men who were coming up with this kind of thinking, right? So it obscures the fact that this is actually white supremacist thinking. Um, And so, um, Across time, then, because this is the correct way of thinking, right? Even though it's the white way of thinking, white Mm -hmm. elite male, it's been imposed on everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? And so if you don't think in these ways, then you're considered other. And if you don't think in these ways, you're considered inferior. And so this has been used by European colonialist powers as well as US colonialist powers, then to justify all manner of both cultural and physical violence right so subordinating cultures things like the native american boarding schools where you're erasing cultures um subjecting um others to to violence and even genocide because they're considered inferior they're considered less than human right so this way of thinking in fact, indexes, um, to use Rosie Braidotti's language, it indexes rights to who gets to be human. Um, so that's how serious this type of, you know, that, that we have to look at these thinking patterns. Um, yeah, so so that's just a little bit about the history. Um, it, the other just, you know, uh, it, that it's very individualistic, right? So it constructs the human as totally separate from their reality, um, from nature, and um, and it, as I said before, it informs the very American idea that um, we are a meritocracy, and you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's a historical and a contextual, um, which is very dangerous, right? Because then we're not taking into consideration historical. Um, and cultural conditions and so that becomes really important when we're talking about multilingual learners because multilingual learner education is extremely political. Um, a lot of times it's conflated with issues of immigration um, and so what happens then when you have a teacher who's a huge Trump fan and believes that, right, <laughs> believe that all Mexicans that are coming over are rapists because Trump said so and then you have that teacher teaching multilingual learners, right? is she gonna, is she going to be totally neutral and and do what she's going to need to do or is you know some of that prejudice going to seep in right so um so that's that's another piece of this um so anyway so the complex perspectives that i um that i research with they help visibilize okay. right what has been invisible so um so yes so that's that's the background of what it is and so do you want me to give now a quick overview of um what the complex perspectives are? Well, because
0: this is an audio you cannot see like uh like right now there is a smoke out of my brain like putting out of my ears like my mind just blew up <laughs> because this is super interesting and it's like wow i haven't thought about that like especially the historical context how how the historical thing come can still be applied right like nowadays. So um but yeah for sure please do an overview of the <laughs> of what you have to think.
1: Okay, so and and so now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk through the shifts um, mm-hmm. um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna apply it to the teaching. So now you can start to see where the practical piece comes in. Okay. Okay. So yeah. um so the type of shifts that I'm talking about um the um there it's it's sort of just this umbrella set of theories, and mm-hmm. largely it's called posthumanism. And I it sounds like a very strange term, because you're like, what do you mean post-humanism? I'm right here and I'm a human. Um just means that it's human and it means that we need to decenter the human in the conversation. And it also means we need to decenter humanism, right? Which is that. Tradition that I was just talking about of thinking that actually turns out to be very harmful Um, So instead moving to post-human thinking um, To think about the world in more complex ways another way that I refer to this way of thinking is theories of critical complexity and that becomes very important to say critical and complex because Critical is a tradition that comes down through Marxism and through the Frankfurt School mm-hmm. um, in education, Paulo Freire, um, and uh, and and you know through many wonderful critical race scholars like Gloria Ladson-Billings, and um, and it becomes very important because anytime you take a critical perspective, it means that you are analyzing power relations. It means that you are from the get go saying. The world is not neutral. It is rife with power relations. And um, there is a dominant culture that is imposed. Um, there are cultures that are seen as inferior. Um, and institutions and society is set up to perpetuate particular inequalities, to keep pati- those particular power imbalances, the dominant power, um, the dominant group in power. So there's that piece. And then the complex piece is the shift to a non-binary worldview, right? And so I'm going to talk through what those shifts look like. So okay. we talked, I talked a little bit about binary thinking as being one of the fundamental characteristics of rational humanism. So if you're shifting then to a critical post-human or critically complex view, it would be monism, which means everything is all together, everything's all connected, um, but it's all different. So it means switching from either or to and, and, and okay, and so everything's all together, everything's all entangled, right? And so there's nothing above, there's nothing below, it's all together. Um, but again, not the same, right? It's not like saying we're all one race, the human race. Um, and so, for teaching and learning, then that means that learning and teaching are not separate processes, they're entangled, they're not the same either, but they're entangled, right? And teaching and learning happen with, through connections, right? So you're connecting with multiple other human, non-human, and, um, you know, intangible elements like culture and context, right? So the teacher is coming into composition with the students in a particular classroom, and they are all working together to produce the teaching. Um, a second shift is moving from individuals, so, you know, separate human individuals in the world, to what I call multiplicities, right? And a multiplicity is like, it's just a mixture of stuff, right? So if you can think about like a constellation or an, um, 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 an activity system is another way to say it. Um, so this idea that teaching is not done by an individual, but it's highly mediated by um, all of the things that I've been talking about. Students, space, physical um, objects like desks and whether you have access to a blackboard or a chalkboard or a whiteboard or a smartboard, right? All of that matters and all of that is all happening at the same time. And then the teacher herself is a multiplicity. She herself brings lots of things that are working together. It's not just her learning. She grew up in a particular context and that's going to make a difference. You know, she has particular experiences. She herself sat in a classroom for approximately 10,000 hours and watched a teacher teaching. So she has very ingrained ideas of what a teacher does, plus her own preparation as a teacher. So all of these things are going to come together and and influence. So it's just layers upon layers or not even layers because it's all happening at the same time because layers implies a hierarchy, right? Um, And then another shift would be from individual agency to distributed agency. So the teacher as an autonomous actor, meaning I am going to plan this lesson and I'm going to come in and do it. And I have complete control over whether I do it. And if I don't do it, right, or if something goes wrong, I can be evaluated and say, I did a bad job, right? Well, that's not how reality works, right? That actually the teacher and the student and everything that's going on all co-produces what is happening right so agency is shared throughout the teacher has some agency she makes some decisions but the students also have agency for example if you're teaching in a way you know for multilingual learners you want to teach in a way that provides them ample opportunities to talk it has to be really participatory um, and supported right but if students decide they don't want to talk mm-hmm. then The lesson is going to be right. You're not going to be able to do what you want to do um, if you if you're planning to have an interactive lesson. So students have agency. Um, There's also testing. So you might want to do this beautiful interactive lesson, but you have to pass this test or students have to pass the test. And so you might feel a real pressure to teach to that test, which then would interfere with your lessons. So that's what I mean by the notion of shared um, uh, agency. And then Another really important shift is moving, like I said, from just thinking about humans Mm -hmm. as as having all the agency to human and. And so that's just really, you know, homing in on the idea that teaching is not just shaped by human actors, but it's also by non-human and material and discursive factors as well. Like I was saying, policy, testing, that shapes, history, that shapes, you know, politics that shapes. So all of those things, you know, the physical space, what teachers have access to in terms of resources. Um, So I think that that's a real um, disruption of our thinking is that, you know, thinking about agency as shared even with non-human objects and and conditions. Um, And then a really, really important one, especially for multilingual learners um, and teaching multilingual learners is moving from this idea um, that the world is neutral and universal and moving to um, everything is political and everything is situated. And this becomes really, really, really important in teaching because exactly of the example that I gave you before about the teacher who supported Trump, right? The teaching teaching is political, period, and and you know it's controlled by the state. So it's political by default. Um, but the education of multilingual learners is even more political, and especially at this time in our history. And so the idea of the English language has a particular power that, and and because it's dominant, and, and you're considered less than if you don't speak um, English. And so we really, you know, so teachers cannot come in. There's this idea that teachers could come in and be objective. They never could be you're never separate from your material conditions. You're never separate from your political conditions. Because again, there's no such thing as universality. You cannot arise above your context, right? You are connected to your students, and because of that, your students are connected to you and your political context. You can't just leave that outside the door. Um, Just like if a student didn't have breakfast in the morning, they can't leave that hunger in their stomach outside the door. and then there's two more shifts. Um, and here's where we start to get into like a real ontological difference. Um, so from being to becoming and becoming different. And what, what I mean by that is by um, looking at teaching and learning, not right? You can learn this teaching method and go and do it perfectly. But teaching and learning are vital processes that are continually developing and they're constantly changing as those different elements of the classroom and school come into composition and they develop and they transform in relation to each other right so if you have even if you teach the exact same class content And you have two different classes, that's a different set of students who are all bringing different understandings and histories and life conditions and all of those types of things. And so you're going to produce in relation to those, whatever teaching that you do, right? And so we can say then that teaching is, quote, emergent phenomena, okay? Or another way to say that is a becoming, right? It's a joint temporal product of a teaching assemblage. And a teaching assemblage is another, that's like sort of a vocabulary word that I use for, you know, um, being able to express a way to talk about those multiplicities, the groupings, right? Those temporary groupings of teacher-student context that's that's constantly changing. Um, and then so we can say that teacher development isn't this linear and stable activity, but it's a series of becomings right? As teachers get together with their students and produce learning in particular contexts, right? So their temporal realizations of, of even, even themselves, they're being produced as teachers in different ways um, mm-hmm. over time. Um, and then the final one is from sameness to difference in hybridity. So because teaching is this collective product that's produced by this joint um, activity of heterogeneous elements, right, different students, different contexts, different objects, different ideas, different histories, all of those things, um, it's always going to be different. That's the only constant across context is it's going to be different, right? Even if you have the same kids on a different day, whatever you produce together is going to be different. You're never going to produce the same thing. Um, so the reigning characteristic of teacher learning practice is difference, And we use the term learning practice hyphenated learning practice Okay. Um, to express the fact that these aren't separate are all the different shifts and we have turned that into an analytic framework that we're going to be using in a set of pilots IRB approval and um, I'm going to be starting in the next couple of weeks starting to collect data so we'll be looking at How are teachers taking up their learning from the e-workshops and how is it materializing in practice? So we'll be looking at the entanglement and the relationship of learning practice in particular contexts, And we'll be looking at, you know, what are the different factors that are mediating them? What are these, you know, what are these different productions that are happening? Um, at any given time. And we're looking in California and we're looking at Nebraska so we can see these two very, very different contexts and what they're producing in terms of teacher learning and practice. It
0: was like a bad connection. Do you mind to repeat a little bit about the, um, the IRB approval that you have for Nebraska and for California? Like with the e-workshops? Yeah. And, sorry about that. Yeah,
1: that, that's okay. Okay, so um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be um, taking those shifts that I just outlined to you okay. and we're going to be putting into a framework, or we've created a framework and we'll be using them to analyze a set of pilot studies that we're conducting. Okay. So we're just now getting IRB approval from the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. and um, between. What teachers learn in their e-workshops and how that learning materializes in practice in their classrooms. Sounds, sounds great. I know that you talk about all of the different
0: shifts and they are very different um, from each other, but if you have to put in a like in a whole sentence, what is the 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 accomplish that you want to, to do with this shift, how do you how do you put it into in that one sentence? <laughs>
1: Um, that's a tall order. So I would say, um, with I would say, um, we want to understand teaching as complex phenomena and simultaneously from a critical perspective. Um, so, um, so this shift is really about, I mean, so it's it there's it's on it's on a couple of different levels though because there's what you want to do with studying teaching but then there's also what you want to do just about thinking in the world right mm-hmm. and so right now we are living in a very scary time we are living in a time where we're seeing a I mean a burgeoning ethno nationalist movement in the United States where you have people saying make America great again and they mean, make America white again and so you have on the one hand the rapid diversification of the United States, and you have, on the other hand, massive backlash to that diversification that is um, legitimized by um, the folks in the, in the White House and in the current administration. And so that type of thinking is about sameness. It's about linearity, and it's about binaries. It's about what's different for me is bad right and what's different for me is inferior and so um and it's and it's about the preserving of uh the dominant power in terms of white male uh hetero patriarchal supremacy um or I should probably say cishet pa- patriarchal supremacy um and so if you look at these shifts they're about just a different way of being in the world it's about connection rather than separation. And it's about expansion rather than reduction down to the one, right? To sameness to me, to, to those who are like me. Um, it's also other than understanding difference is bad and something that needs to be filtered out, right? So again, taking the, taking the example of the teacher and mm-hmm. wanting her to, to do these methods with high fidelity. Instead, Um, saying, actually, it needs to be low fidelity because it needs to be different based on context. Um, But the other, and then for multilingual learners, saying difference is actually a generative force. So the more difference you bring into the context, the richer it's going to be and the more possibilities there are going to be for creation of things we've never even thought of, right? And so if you apply this in in this idea to science, the richest ecosystems on earth, the most biodiverse ecosystems on earth are also the ones that are the strongest because they're continually evolving and they're, mm-hmm. so it ensures their survival, right? And so that's analogous to the diverse classroom, mm-hmm. right? The more languages you have, the more cultures you have, the more experiences you have, the more opportunities you have for learning and creating new and richer understandings of the world and of living together and being together
0: I never thought about that analogy before, but I really like it. <laughs> um, that, was more, that was more than one sentence, but I, I can take it. <laughs> Sorry.
1: Hey, hey, this is a paradigm of proliferation, not reduction. Okay? I
0: know. Bear
1: with me. With me.
0: <laughs> so I guess that with the pilot that you are going to test, uh, you are going to see the, the difference and you are going to get – Um, different implication from the teachers, but what are you, like, what are the results that you are expecting from, from these shifts?
1: Well, so rather than results, I mean, I think it gives us a different lens. So um, one of the beautiful things about qualitative research um, is that you don't know what you're going to find. And I mean, a lot of times we have ideas of what we're going to find, um, especially if we've done Similar research before. So I have done similar research and what I find is, um, you know, these shifts are informed by the research that I've done, right? So what I find is that, you know, the teacher brings a certain set of beliefs and understandings Mm -hmm. into the classroom and then works together with the students and with whatever conditions are present um, to, to, to negotiate that learning. Um, and so the learning morphs so it's never going to materialize in the exact form that it might be you know in in the workshop or whatever it is and so the interesting thing is saying what about this situation and what's going on in the situation is producing this particular manifestation of that learning because that's what practice is right is the teacher took the learning and negotiated it with all of these elements and then produced some practice, right? But what is most interesting to arise, um, you know, to these particular manifestations of practice Um, and how are students responding to it? So one of the things I love about this project is it's multi-layered. So it's not just about the teacher. It's about the teacher and the students and how, so how the teacher is taking up the learning um, how she's negotiating it, and then how teachers are, uh, students are responding. So we've recently um, conducted a, a review of literature. Um, Kara has led a team that um, looked at best practices mm-hmm. for uh, teaching bilingual kids. And one of the things that we found in looking at the studies was that they looked at the teacher learning and then they tried to make a direct connection to student outcomes. Right. And so they jumped over a whole bunch of stuff, right? Because the teacher learns and that in itself is a negotiation with a bunch of different, Mm -hmm. you know, variables, but then whatever she's learned, she come, you know, is then entangled with what she does in the classroom. So then she goes in the classroom and there's all these different elements and she's working together with students and then the students learn. And so then there's a whole bunch of stuff going on with that right that's mediating the student learning you go and they do a test right and so trying to say the teacher learned this and the students did this those, are those kind of you can't make that connection it's just not linear there's so many things that are happening in between so what's really interesting to me is that we get to look at what happens in between in a very from a very, very complex perspective
0: okay Wow. <laughs> I hate to stop the conversation because this is so much interesting. Like like we could spend like hours talking about the framework and <laughs> and all of the all of the studies that you are doing with Cara. Um but I hate it, but I have to do it. <laughs> um, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all your work with ICME because you are you are like a really Uh, important part as everybody in this project uh, so this project can be like as good as it (laughs) (laughs) Um, but just if you would like to add something else um, to this conversation I I need to (laughs) close it
1: Um just to say that um in, in all of this I just want to reemphasize that um in making these shifts it's really an ethical imperative, it's a social justice imperative. Because as I mentioned, the the re- education oh, of multiple I'm sorry. is extremely the
0: connection it's not working so well. I don't know what is happening, but do you mind to repeat it again, please?
1: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to re-emphasize, because um, I'm not sure if I said it explicitly, but the shifts that we're talking about um, away from rational humanism into critical complexity, it's an ethical imperative. It is a social justice imperative, because as we've been saying, the education of multilingual learners is extremely political, and mm-hmm. the way that we teach them right now and the way that we uh, prepare teachers is based on very linear models that are based on white supremacist thinking. And... They do not take into consideration context. They do not look at language diversity as uh, a resource, which it is. Um, and so, and they don't look at language as a process. Um, and so you see things like the separation of language and content, which makes for, um, you know, very impoverished learning situation. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this, I just wanted to reemphasize that theories of critical complexity are also about ultimately creating a more intersectionally just world
0: for sure thank you so much for that drop up because i i think that it summarized like very well what we just talked um, so thank you so much again for all of your work and for doing this interview
1: okay thank you so much i'll send you the slides
0: of the shift perfect i can add it on the podcast notes okay fantastic thank you
1: so
0: much thank you
1: Okay.